This is Man's Search for Medicine with your hosts, Brandon Smith and Zach Pope. This podcast is a result of our desire to learn what's not being taught in medical school, but is necessary to effectively help our patients. Through this learning process, we hope to excite doctors, empower patients, and challenge dogma, all while bringing humility and curiosity to the art and science of medicine. sent me while you were over there we didn't really talk about the metabolic summit too much i just saw a bunch of pictures of you and like aubrey marcus and and <laughs> yeah lots so, of quest bars yeah yeah lots of quest bars so what uh i guess what were some of the big like takeaways you had from the conference takeaways were interesting um well, why don't you just first explain like what the conference that you went to was yeah so metabolic health summit is Essentially put on by Dominic D'Agostino and his research lab. They do a lot of research with ketones and like utilization of ketones. Um, most of the things that they were presenting had to do with just how uh, ketones could be applied into extreme cir- like circumstances. That's mainly Dom's focus. A lot of the other people in his lab were looking at type 1 diabetes. Um, There's a guy named Andrew Kutnick that presented on that and how he'd been trying to treat his own type 1 diabetes with some uh, ketones. Um, So basically, Metabolic Health Summit, the idea was that there's a nutrition conference um, focused on metabolic therapies and anything that had to do with nutrition kind of fell under that umbrella. Okay. But a lot of it was ketone based so it was kind of a keto conference <laughs> if uh, you had to break it down was it like i know some of some of the keto people as like i guess i would consider myself in this category at some point at least like kind of like off their rocker you know like kind of dogmatic right very enthusiastic <laughs> that's a nice way to put it but like i mean did, did you feel like was it was it very like science-based or did they start to get kind of um I guess, like, emotionally involved and, like, defensive of ketosis and all that stuff. Right. So there's definitely a balance. Um, I mean, coming in, I'm pretty – I try to consider myself at least not um, dogmatic or um, particular in any specific diet. Mm-hmm. I think the main point is cutting out processed foods, and you're about 80% of the way there. Yeah. So with that in mind and that kind of be my approach to diet – there was um, definitely a large sect of people that were there solely for ketogenic diet stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the audience was interesting. And Dom, actually speaking with him, was uh, he kind of called it out himself, was that the audience attending his conference was pretty split. Like You have people that are very well trained in medicine. You have MDs, you have PhDs, you have people from all over the field coming in, um, nurse practitioners, dietitians, really anybody. And with that in mind, there are also some lay people, mm-hmm. people that have been um, treated for various disorders with ketogenic diet, um, some brain cancer survivors, uh, people that were just enthusiastic about the diet, and some people that just wanted to know more about what it was like. Mm-hmm. So all over the place, all kinds of levels of ed- education. Mm-hmm. And with that kind of diverse split i would say most of the conference itself was kept at a pretty pretty easy to understand level 
Um, the concepts of the speakers were fairly broken down, although there was a lot of science-based presentation, um, lots of research, and basically people updating us on what they've been working on recently. Awesome. Um, briefly, like for the listener, uh, obviously we're not going to go into like ketogenic diet stuff today, really. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but for people who might be more interested in uh, knowing a little bit more about what you learned at the conference, uh, what are some resources? What are who are some like people to follow on Instagram stuff like that? Yeah, so I mean, I would say the main people that um, that I spoke with and kind of followed that stood out. Um, so obviously Dominic D'Agostino uh, at University of Southern Florida, the and I guess his company Ketone Technologies. Um, there were a lot of other companies there, kind of sponsoring the event. Quest is one of them. They sponsored a lot of the research. And how's that Quest Pizza last night? The Quest Pizza <laughs> was so good. How did you feel about yours? I I really liked it. I mean, it didn't. It was kind of just a solid pizza. Like it wasn't anything like exceptional, but it certainly like met the like met the bar as far as pizza goes. And the fact that like. I think it had like what, like five net carbs or something. Something, something like that. It was like five or seven net carbs, like fifteen grams of fiber. It was, it was super tasty. So yeah. it checked all the boxes. Yeah, <laughs> and I felt pretty great after. Yeah, right. Like, to no issues. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Dominic uh, D'Agostino, and then who else? Yeah, um, people that kind of spoke on one of the performance days kind of stood out. Mm-hmm. So that would be Aubrey Marcus. Um, yeah. And he, he's the CEO of Onnit, right? Correct. Okay. So his presentation was very much not science-based. Yeah. Um, no PowerPoint, and he just kind of shot from the hip, um, had us deep breathe. and. Did he have y'all exotic dance at all? I know he's real into that. We did not exotic okay. dance. Okay. Or ecstatic dance, yeah. That's what he does. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Um, and then also on that board was Mark Sisson. So I got to talk to him a little bit about his company actually getting acquired by Kraft. Okay. Uh, so that was pretty wow. cool. And he's actually running an initiative now for primal health coaching. And he talked to me a little bit about that. Hmm. So yeah. that was interesting. Um, and then also on that panel was Rob Wolf. So he was, I guess, kind of coming from our mindset that uh, diets will work. Um, main focus is cutting out processed foods. And with that mindset, he... Uh, Kind of made some jokes about being not necessarily super strict keto, um, but yeah, it was good. He's just kind of in that like low carb, like paleo camp. Like you don't need to necessarily always do drastic um, carb like elimination that there's value for. He always talks about how like uh, he does a lot of jujitsu and right. how like a a diet that's absent. Um, that's completely void of carbs is not really conducive to like recovering from that kind of like, um, like glycolytic like pathway, um, which I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Um, right. I mean, ultimately it kind of comes down to the individual, like what they're training for. Right. Yeah. Um, Marxism was a pretty big advocate of ultimately he called the term metabolic flexibility. Yes. So basically I from paleo effects a couple of years ago. Yeah. So that's kind of. I guess what he's championing now. So okay. um, basically just being able to use all the systems in your body and not just be entirely dependent on burning sugar all the time and yeah. uh, just being at a, 
being able to like eat whenever you want, however you want, and not just need snacks to keep your blood sugars up all day. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> lots of parallels there with like CrossFit and being able to function in many like be able to excel in many different like domains like oh like exactly <clears throat> i'm a sugar burner and i can't so i can do you know like sets of five to ten really really well but i'm also like a fat burner i can go run a 5k i can go run you know a 10 or a row a 10k or whatever um so yeah that makes a lot of sense to me for, for sure agreed um cool well, so just great experience yeah well. it sounds like it uh it sounds like you might go again next year. That's the plan. Okay, cool. Um, nice. Well, shall we go ahead and dive in? Yeah, All let's right. get into it. You see him dying to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is the first uh, content episode. And so uh, definitely feeling out like the process for this, admittedly. Yeah. But uh, but that's okay. Uh, that's, that's what this is all about is kind of... Um, learning how to take something that's really complex and distill it down to what's going to benefit us and our patients the most. Exactly. Um, um, no pressure on you being an expert. But, uh, <laughs> I can be pretty good at asking questions. So hopefully um, you have some answers. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I sure hope so. Um, so the question is, should I be taking a probiotic and that the reason that that's the question is because that's literally the question I was asked when I was in the pediatric GI clinic um, by a patient and his mother. Um, and I didn't really know how to respond in a confident, evidence based way. Uh, and uh, I mean, kind of my gut instinct was yes, of course, you know, we come from this kind of integrative, like functional medicine like influenced perspective and it seems like these things are good but what well first of all I guess we should define what a probiotic is for those of you who may not be so familiar with it yeah um, stop taking my questions and, uh, <laughs> just go ahead and tell us what probiotics are <laughs> so uh, probiotics are commonly defined in the literature as live microbial food ingredients that when ingested in adequate amounts, alter the microflora and confer health benefit to the host organism, end quote. Um, so it's a pretty simple definition. Yeah. And I'm, but I'm sure that like just seeing that you can come up with some kind of ways in which some, some things might like fly under the radar as probiotics that aren't really what we think of as probiotics. And then some things that we might can like, we might think that are conferring benefit to us, but really aren't. And so they don't fall under the category of probiotic. And uh, we'll kind of discuss at the end. It gets kind of like like existential and like definition, you know, lots of definitions and stuff like that. But um, so. So you already kind of talked about why we're asking this question. Um, anything you want to add there? Um, yeah. So I feel like probiotics. Um, kind of represent um, one of the more robust seeming interventions from an integrative medicine standpoint. And, and really probiotics kind of walk this line between like the conventional world and the alternative world of medicine and health where, you know, p people in the conventional side of medicine, they don't 
um, like condemn the use of probiotics, but they certainly don't recommend it like on a on a big scale. And so I thought it would be a good episode to start on because uh, I think it captures a lot of what we're trying to do is like is uh, create um, kind of a better relationship between the people representing the alternative camp or the integrative camp and then the conventional camp. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so obviously we're training in the conventional medical practice. Right. Have you seen probiotics come up in that setting besides your GI clinic? Uh, yeah. So, uh, well, also on pediatrics, I gave a little, um, presentation on, uh, when probiotics, are indicated and kind of in general in pediatrics when um, when they could be used in the hospital setting. A lot of the research centered around um, preventing antibiotic-associated diarrhea and um, gastroenteritis. Um, there was some actual uh, preventive evidence uh, surrounding um, per- the prevention of upper res- respiratory infections. Uh, I thought that was particularly interesting. Uh, and in addition to that, the one that really stood out to me at that time was using probiotics in preterm infants. So these are these are neonates, babies that um, were just born, but they're preterm. Um, so they're particularly susceptible to a handful of diseases, one of which being uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, also called NEC. And... <clears throat> This leads to a myriad of issues. But anyway, so they give antibiotics prophylactically in preterm infants to try to prevent neck. And uh, a lot of the meta-analysis showed that it actually did. It actually did benefit uh, and prov- allow you know a substantially lower number of preterm infants to develop neck. And that kind of like sparked my interest in, in wanting to dig deeper, but I hadn't really dug deeper until, um, deciding to do this podcast. Yeah. Um, on, I guess right now I'm an inpatient internal medicine at Methodist and we actually had a patient that I think we were starting, um, it may have been Vank, but some kind of IV antibiotics and just to go ahead and try to prevent or stop worrying about C. diff, we prophylactically treated with some probiotics and that was the pharmacist call actually. So kind of interesting. Um, it was just kind of offhanded. So I know we talked about that in conventional setting, um, functional medicine, and I guess uh, integrative medicine, where do you feel like they stand? I think that they're kind of like uh, unanimously on board with the use of probiotics and almost kind of tout it as this like panacea, like magic kind of, it's like the foundation of every single intervention and uh, often gets referred to as like an evidence-based intervention and and kind of they throw out mechanisms like leaky gut and inflammation um which i'm not saying that those aren't valid points but the evidence doesn't really get referred to like i haven't seen a like a comprehensive paper or comprehensive even like blog post that covers like the most recent evidence on indications and mechanisms uh just kind of like i remember i I went to a couple blogs one of which i think let's see 
like Dr. Kara Fitzgerald or something like that. And, and then I watched a Mark Hyman video who, for those of you who haven't heard of Mark Hyman, he is uh, the, I don't know, is he the head of functional medicine? He's definitely he, high up. Yeah, he's, he's kind of a, he's kind of a, like one of the prominent faces representing functional medicine um, at, the, at the national level. And his video talking about probiotics was um, just very surface level, and I, I know he was trying to reach a broad audience, but I was I was relatively unimpressed with the extent he um, went into the evidence, and I think that's just super important when you're representing this integrative community. Is we know our the vulnerability is in the evidence, and so I think we need to do an, a particularly good job of um, of providing that for. Uh, our patients and our colleagues. Yeah. So if people were to be searching around online, what kind of things do you think that they would come up with first? Like just in that simple Google search, like what is a probiotic? How should I be taking a probiotic and things like that? What, uh, what would they expect to find? Yeah. So I actually, I actually did that because I was interested, you know, when people type in, should I be taking a probiotic or something along, along those lines? It's where people start. Right. It really is. Dr. Dr. Google. Google. Uh, (laughs) Um, and it was kind of surprising. Um, so WebMD said that they're good and that they're helpful and that they can, that they, like, I think the wording they use is they're implicated in being able to treat things like um, irritable bowel syndrome, um, antibiotic-induced diarrhea, and then have anecdotal support for a number of other diseases like type 2 diabetes and prevention of um, heart disease and these kinds of things, but definitely came out and said uh, the evidence is lacking, more evidence needs to be done. Like that's a pretty, um, uh, it's a term that we see a lot. It's kind of like there's insufficient evidence to indicate this as a standard of care or something along those lines, which is kind of like a cop out. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's not a strong statement. It's not a strong statement. It's like, yeah, there's, there's some stuff, but we need more. It's like, okay, well, at what point are we going to start using this? Um, and then the, let's see, the national, um, Institute of complementary, um, medicine research, uh, NICCH, um, they they said that more needs to be learned about it, but um, overall they were pretty um, they were pretty in favor of um, the possibility of using it in the future. Um, so I, I I will say as far as the kind of conventional medical um, like figureheads on the internet, I think that that clinical practice does not reflect how. Um, on board uh, the like institution is does that make sense yeah okay um, so yeah there's there's lots there's lots that has been written on it out there um, but I feel like the kind of the purpose of this the the value that I hope we bring is that we are critically analyzing this as the potential of being a standard of care. And um, obviously we can't recommend anything, but the people in the conventional side are kind of throwing their hands in the air and just saying, yeah, there's not enough research. And then the people in the functional medicine side of things 
are blanketly prescri- prescribing, in quotes, uh, probiotics to everyone. And so we we need to kind of like tr- take a critical analysis of this and then like move forward with intention. Right. And I mean, especially in something that um, at least at like first glance doesn't seem to have any negative side effects. Yeah. So there's no negative side effects potentially. Uh, it seems like it's an easy intervention that who knows what the benefit is, but if there's no negative consequences, it's easy to throw it out there. Right. And I, I really, really like the uh, Peter Atia kind of analogy of um, like picking up money in front of a, like a car or, you know, so in Plus. this case, like our initial impression is like, this is the equivalent perhaps of picking up a 10 or $20 bill in front of like a walking pedestrian. <laughs> right. Not much coming your way. Right. Not much coming your way. Like the risk, like, yeah, like you might get like, you might get like kind of bulldozed Stubbed by your toe. <laughs> yeah, stub your toe. Um, whereas some of the other medications that we take in like conventional medicine might be like picking up a 10 or $20 bill, but it's, we're picking it up in front of like a bulldozer you know (laughs) or worse just picking up a few pennies yeah picking up a few pennies in front of uh even someone riding their bike you know um so anyway well once once we kind of break this down i think that that analogy will be um become a little bit clearer with that in mind do you personally take a probiotic i do okay do Do you want to tell us about what you take and how you take it yeah so uh i take i currently take a vsl3 which is, uh, we'll get into that product um, a bit because that's one of the most heavily researched probiotics. I take it, I currently, prior to doing this research, um, take it at night before I go to bed on an empty stomach. Um, And I take it with the rest of my nighttime supplements, which are um, ZMA, so a combination of zinc and um, magnesium and B6 and then melatonin. So I take those three things at night. What about you? Yeah. I also use VSL number three. Um, and I think maybe it was Rhonda Patrick. It kind of recommended VSL number three, um, when I kind of incorporated it. And I initially, I think I took one of the pills capsules per day until I ran out of that. Um, I guess it's like a 60 pack. Yeah. So for about two months, I took one per day. And then since then, I've been taking about one capsule every Sunday. So once a week. Oh, so pretty, I guess, slow dose. Yeah. Um, I Are think you taking it, the, what is it? 112.5 billion. Yeah. Okay. Um, just the one you can order through Amazon. Mm-hmm. And then I think maybe I've taken antibiotics once since starting that. And when I was taking um, antibiotics, I just would take one per day. Not exactly at the same time as the antibiotic, but yeah, yeah, uh, it isn't. I will brief caveat when you said like, "Oh, are you taking a probiotic?" That's clearly uh, kind of referring to the supplement version, the capsule. Correct. But w- when in reality, you know, a probiotic is like we referred to um, any time that you have like a live um, microbial food uh, that's ingested that's supposed to confer health benefits. So I do consume kombucha pretty frequently. I drink probably one or two a week. Um, I try to have a serving of, um, sauerkraut or kimchi every day. Um, and then I typically on my 
Saturday, aka today, Saturday, uh, <laughs> I have um, some yogurt. So um, I'm still consuming quite a bit of like probiotic food, but we'll kind of get into like the differences there between that kind of like natural probiotic food versus like encapsulated. Yeah. All right, let's move on and get into some definitions and terminology. Um, I know people throw out this word microbiome, and it's kind of a big, big word. Uh, micro means small, biome, uh, environment. Yeah. So do you just want to break that down for us? Tell us what's going on with that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, definitions are kind of important um, to start out with. A, because like a lot of people don't have a background in this, but even for the people who do, I mean, it's, it kind of forces us to take a step back and like make sure that we're getting our first principles right. Um, yes, definitely. Uh, I mean, I think it's important to have the words right because just a slight alteration or not being super specific can make a big difference. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> microbiota um, is referring to the collection of organisms that are in or on our bodies. So the microbiota is just referring to all the, um, it's the combination of the bacteria and the fungi and the parasites, um, the microbial eukaryotes. So brief aside, bacteria, prokaryotes. And so there are other microbial eukaryotes, um, viruses. Um, and so the term microbiome refers to the genes that are present. It refers to the actual genetic material, whereas the microbiota refers to the, like, the, the organisms themselves. So not a huge distinction, but like definitely worth noting because the, the genes that are present may, could fluctuate without the actual organisms changing, right? You know, because of expression. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a small distinction, but one that's important to make. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so this microbiota um, and microbiome, and we'll kind of, for most intents and purposes, use them interchangeably, um, but the microbiota um, that we'll be talking about today um, reside primarily in the intestines, uh, referred to as the gut microbiome. But it's worth noting that there are still substantial amounts in the mouth, on the skin, in the stomach, in your nose, on the genitals, in the uh, conjunctiva of your eye. And then recently we found out that there's actually a microbiome in the uterus, which is just kind of interesting because we used to think that the uterus is this sterile um, environment. Um, but now we're finding that there's actually a microbiome in there that has uh, a, a kind of a immune conferring properties and, and might play a role in allergies and autoimmune diseases and all kinds of stuff. But that's not within the scope of the conversation today. And just out of my own curiosity, is the microbiota of each one of these regions similar or is it varied based off of location? Yeah, very based off of location. Okay. Um, so, like, for example, uh, I don't know if you remember when we did microlab our third semester of medical school. Yeah. Um, when we, like, had to swab our phones and our nares 
and found out that a majority of us, uh, it seemed, carry MRSA, uh, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, in our noses, uh, and therefore it's every you know it's on our phones and all kinds of stuff. Um, so that's a like um, it's actually not uncommon to have MRSA in your nose, um, which is a little less common, um, like um, enterically, like in the like gut microbiome. So the skin, the nares, like that's, that contains MRSA, um, um, obviously staph, um, staph epi, um, stuff like that. So, um, so I'm guessing most of what we're going to be talking about today and the research that's been done has been on the gut. Yeah. I would say the gut foremost, um, secondarily the skin, but today we're really just talking about the gut. That's, um, that's, you know, kind of the one that has the most uh, influence that we've seen on um, health uh, in general. So um, so people used to say there's like 10 to 1 or like 100 to 1 bacteria to human cells, but recent research actually suggests it's closer to a 1 to 1 ratio between human cells and bacterial cells, which is kind of crazy because it means that simple things that alter our microbiome like our diet or getting like a bowel clean out for a colonoscopy can like change the ratio um not that i who knows if that has implications but i just think you know that's kind of interesting that these small things can change our entire being from being a majority human to a majority bacteria or vice vice versa and how do those bacteria kind of lay out or i guess how are they structured in the gut um so as we mentioned, like primarily in the colon with some in the small intestine, but there's kind of two layers to it. Um, the outer, and the, so I guess backing up a little bit, uh, we have all of our like colonocytes or in, like enterocolonocytes in the colon. Um, these are epithelial cells that kind of create the gut lining and are involved in absorption and um, immune function uh, which we'll get into a little bit later. So that obviously is part of the host cells, you know, our our own body. And then outside of that, in the lumen of the gut, so the kind of empty space that food passes through, um, you have two layers. The outermost layer, um, closer to the food, being primarily the bacteria. And this is primarily commensal, so um, commensal versus pathogenic. So this is bacteria that is supposed to be kind of good for us, you know, and that we're good for it. So we have this kind of mutual exchange of value between ourselves and this bacteria. And then there's a a little bit thicker layer between the bacteria and us that's consisted of uh, mucin, which is created by the bacteria and used as fuel for um, the enterocytes. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it, it's an, it plays an important role kind of mediating the relationship between the cells that comprise our intestine with the bacteria that we're hosting. Yeah. Um, did you learn that in school? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, do you remember I, hearing anything about this in the first two years? Um, 
gosh, I don't even know if the word microbiome came up maybe once or twice, but uh, it certainly did not leave a lasting impression on me. And I feel like I would have remembered. What about you? It came up, but I think it was kind of offhand. Okay. Uh, I don't think it was really anything in slides or anything official that we were tested on. Which is kind of crazy because I think after after we discuss this, it's going to be like, how in the world are we not like talking about this uh, yeah. in our medical education? Um, All right. Yeah. So let's kind of move on. Let's talk about what are some of the things that probiotics have been studied in and could possibly treat. Yeah. So I guess the first thing I wanted to discuss is uh, diabetes and obesity. Uh, some of the most compelling research comes from um, the uh, kind of manipulating the microbiome in diabetes and obesity. And I think it's first worth pointing out that all the diseases we're going to talk about have been proven that the that people with these diseases have different uh, kind of predictable microbiome profiles compared to healthy subjects. Uh, there's a huge spectrum of variety uh, among everyone based on, I mean, just about everything. So based on uh, environment, based on even genetics, based on, you know, culturally, because uh, all those things are going to influence your diet and are going to influence your exposures. And so it's worth noting that there's this huge, huge spectrum. But in general, people who have diabetes, um, people who have metabolic syndrome, people who are obese do have um, substantially different microbiomes than healthy individuals. Um, so <clears throat> I, I guess I first, since this is our first dive into research, did want to kind of discuss the approach for this. Uh, so in this section, I'm mainly going to be uh, referencing data from meta-analyses uh, and the value of that. So a meta-analysis is uh, when researchers have pilfered through a bunch of evidence, uh, in this case, predominantly randomized control trials, and they aggregate conclusions based on the data. And it really, I think it's fair to say in most circumstances, this is some of the most robust evidence because um, it's kind of a bird's eye view of everything that's going on. So you're not getting caught in the nuances of one study and you're, you're a little bit more likely to um, kind of get past some of the biases um, that might come up with a particular study. So I guess that's, that's all to say that I think by focusing primarily on meta-analyses, especially within the last like two to three years, that we're getting a little bit more of like the truth here. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're talking about the gold standard, um, I mean, in science and medicine, we try to use randomized control trials and then what's better than a randomized control trial, a group of randomized control trials. Right, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, and we're gonna steer away from epidemiology because we'll, we'll get into that later, but it's, it's a little bit, it can be misleading and really not a great source of research to draw conclusions from. Cool, so do you wanna tell us a little bit about what you found with type two diabetes? Yeah, so um, the first meta-analysis I looked at uh, was about 400 patients with type two diabetes who were taking um, either probiotic capsules or probiotic food like yogurt and 
they observed a lowered uh, fasting plasma glucose, which is kind of one of the main ways we diagnose diabetes. So they saw a decrease in blood glucose of around uh, 16, which is pretty substantial actually, um, to think that you could take a probiotic for like eight weeks, maybe less than that, and have your blood glucose normalized by 16. Yeah, especially um, if you're borderline. Yeah. I mean, granted, these were type 2 diabetics, so maybe they're like, there's a different mechanism at play there than it would be for like a pre-diabetic patient. But but as we'll learn later, like these mechanisms are fairly well conserved among both sick and healthy individuals. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, uh, unsurprisingly, not a huge difference in hemoglobin A1C, which is the marker for more kind of prolonged um, measurement of glucose in the blood. And we only saw half a point decrease on average, which makes sense because in this particular meta-analysis, uh, there were only um, eight weeks was the most. And so you're not going to see a huge difference there. Right. And I mean, on top of that, if you're taking like oral agents, you'll drop your A1C by two to three points. Okay. Um, but I mean, who knows, maybe these people are already taking some oral agents and Good point. maybe their A1C was already kind of dropped from that. And who knows what this yeah. is added on top of it. So yeah, I don't really remember the exclusion criteria, whether they were taking, whether they had to be on, um, an oral, um, hyperglycemic agent or whether they couldn't be taking insulin or whatever. I can't, I can't remember, but, um, some of the limitations for this study were <clears throat> they, as I mentioned, were all less than eight weeks. Uh, they had a variety of strains in the probiotic capsules, which is going to be kind of a recurring theme throughout all of this research is, uh, there's rarely standardization. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that creates huge problems because then as researchers, they can't say, Oh, you know, they can't recommend this. He said more research needs to be done, making sure that da, 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 da. So, right. We like um, to be rigorous Yeah, for the better or the worse. Um, and then did you find any studies that were a little bit more rigorous? Yeah, so there's another one uh, that had 12 randomized control trials that looked at with 100 or 800 um, type 2 diabetic patients, and they specifically looked at either lactobacillus or bifidobacterium plus lactobacillus or the combination of the two plus a prebiotic. So it'd be a probiotic plus prebiotic fiber, which is kind of what the probiotic organism uses as a uh, energy source. So a little bit more specific on the um, types of bacteria. And this um, meta-analysis looked at trials that were all across the world. So it was in Middle East, Southeast Asia, Brazil, and Denmark. Um, and so kind of shows the, um, despite these regional differences in like diet and culture and um, environment, like these particular bacteria taken as a probiotic still make a pretty substantial difference. So these, these trials looked at um, taking probiotic as a supplement for four to 12 weeks, a huge range of dose from 10 million to 10 billion. Uh, so really lacking standardization there. And all the trials showed a... Um, a decrease in fasting plasma glucose, just like the last trial. This one was a little more modest. Um, it was at 11 milligrams per deciliter. Um, it's still, you know, uh, an improvement for sure. Not a huge difference in hemoglobin A1C, small improvement in insulin. Um, 
They measured a couple other things, though. Um, they measured insulin resistance, uh, which is a hallmark of diabetes. Um, and they showed a substantial improvement in that. Um, however, the the kind of flip side of that coin is a, um, a quickie test, so a Q-U-I-C-K-I, which is a, <clears throat> a test for insulin sensitivity, so like the opposite of insulin resistance, and that did not improve. So um, there's some uh, improvement related to um, this mechanism of improving um, kind of like how we manage and produce insulin, which is something I'm excited to get into later. But um, this particular meta-analysis also looked at triglycerides, which eight of the nine trials that looked at triglycerides uh, improved uh, an average of 24 points as a decrease. So uh, the kind of conventional standard for that is 150. So uh, your doctor that you see is most likely going to be happy if you get less than 150. However, um, in the world of health optimization, we try to shoot for below 100, um, or ideally even below 75. And this was a 25, uh, an average of 24 points. So that's pretty, pretty substantial. Yeah, I mean, looking at that, it looks like everything's kind of moving in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, your your insulin resistance is. Uh, going down, your triglycerides are going down. Um, and then also the total cholesterol goes down. And I, you know, I'm hesitant to kind of get into the cholesterol right now since that's just such a nuanced, uh, a nuanced issue that really deserves its own podcast because the way we're measuring, um, and reporting cholesterol and using different markers of cholesterol, surrogate markers are really, not not the best yeah um, i think i think that would actually be a, probably a pretty good one for you to dive into at some point um i feel like you're into the all that lipid stuff i'll entertain that idea <laughs> um so i mean these are measurements that we're taking and most people aren't going to be able to feel a difference of this mm. uh did you find any studies that looked at i guess more tangible outcomes that people could see results in or yeah uh that's a good point i think uh, I wanted to make sure I looked into a few studies that um, I talked about, uh, like direct outcomes, not just like not just like blood sugar, but like talking about like losing weight, feeling better, things that um, are more uh, observable for people. And um, starting with some of the animal research, um, a ton of trials done in this particular meta-analysis. There were uh, 72 trials, and 61 of those trials um, let taking a probiotic led to reduced um, weight gain and fat accumulation while on a, um, obesogenic diet. So a, a diet that, um, we know, uh, causes mice to gain fat, um, giving them a probiotic beforehand and throughout the like feeding process pre- protected them against, um, developing fat. And in this, uh, in all of these trials, uh, that was a combination of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. Um, and then some human trials, um, there are some ones done in children, adolescents, and then adults. Um, in some of the children trials, um, there was a decreased weight gain, um, and, or sorry, they, it was, there were obese children uh, and adolescents, and they had decreased weight, weight circumference, and 
or BMI. Um, and this was in North America, Japan, Brazil, the Middle East. And that's important because, once again, these are different cultures with different diets. Um, so this combination is a pretty robust and reliable um, kind of cause of these effects. And then in adults, uh, nine out of the 10 trials showed uh, protection against uh, gaining weight um, when they were put on a high caloric diet. So the way the trials went is they were put on a high diet or a high caloric diet, were given probiotics, and half of the people or half of the people weren't given probiotics. And the half that were given probiotics exhibited wet, less weight gain and a smaller waist circumference than the people who were put on the high calorie diet without getting the probiotics. That's unethical. I know. I, I, I noticed that too. Um, I, I forgot to look into like the particular patients and I didn't know whether maybe there was an indication for them to gain weight and that created like a little bit of, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, what other conditions you got? Um, a lot more. So we'll, we'll <laughs> blast through these. So irritable bowel syndrome. So IBS, it is a symptomatic disease. So it's diagnosed clinically, uh, for people who kind of, I forget the criteria off the top of my head, but you're looking at, um, you know, kind of like nonspecific bloating, diarrhea, constipation. So there's, there's IBSD. So IBS with diarrhea and then there's IBSC. IBS with constipation. Uh, so kind of this like nonspecific myriad of digestive symptoms and it's highly comorbid with depression, which has led a lot of research to be done with, um, kind of like, is there a serotonin component to this, which there unsurprisingly is. Um, it sounds like kind of a heterogeneous disease. Yes, very much so. Um, it is more common in females in general, and it's typically kind of the females in the 20 to 30 year old range. But yeah, it is, it is kind of heterogeneous. Um, what kind of studies did you find? So uh, a couple of huge studies, one with about 3,500 patients. Um, once again, using a huge um, diversity of strains and combinations. However, they were mostly lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. And... So these patients saw, the ones that were given probiotics, 44% of them saw improve, uh, improved symptoms, whereas 27% of the placebo. So yes, it's a difference, but it's not like jaw-dropping, um, but still sub pretty substantial. Um, and the improved symptoms included just global, like IBS-related symptoms, abdominal pain scores, um, bloating, um, flatulence. And, um, so, I mean, for, for people who live with this like every day and it's, you know, embarrassing and it's kind of getting in the way of the quality of life, uh, this definitely, um, is implicated to be able to potentially help with that. Um, I, uh, the, this particular meta-analysis meta did point out some interesting statistics. Um, the number needed to treat so the number of people that you have to give a probiotic in order for one person to get benefit was eight. So that means that if eight people are given a probiotic in this particular meta-analysis, one of them is going to see remission of symptoms or improvement. 
For reference, I would say that a lot of medications have um, number needed to treat in double digits at least. Yeah. So a uh, single digit number there is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and then on the converse of that is number needed to harm. So uh, same same deal. It's just, you know, how many patients have to get this medication before one person is harmed. And, and harm is ambiguous. It's just kind of uh, adverse side effect. Um, it's going to vary for each drug. So in this case, it was 35. So, it, I mean, it wasn't amazing. Uh, we like to see that definitely in the triple digits. But once again, compared to um, compared to a lot of the conventional medicines, uh, that's not bad at all. And, and just for reference, um, <laughs> so uh, giving amoxicillin for otitis media, which is kind of just standard of care and very common in the pediatric setting the number needed to treat is 20 so you give 20 people that medication before you see um one person with complete like remission of their otitis media and the pain associated with it which is just a by the way an ear, an ear infection of sorts uh and then the number needed to harm is nine uh and that is typically diarrhea so kind of uh even though that's standard of care the number needed to treat is significantly higher and then the number needed to harm is significantly lower. So just like as a point of reference, I think that's important. Do you remember what uh, they considered harm for probiotics? Yeah. So it's just increased flatulence, um, headache, um, which I thought was kind of weird. Um, what else? Constipation, uh, diarrhea. I think those were the, those were the adverse side effects that came up. Okay. Um, did you find any other studies for IBS? Uh, yeah. So there was one done earlier this year, um, that, uh, 10 out of the 11 studies had improved symptoms, but, um, they didn't feel comfortable recommending because there was such a variation in the strains and the dosages. Um, so once again, we run into this issue of standardizing the strains and dosages. Um, yeah. All right. What about any other, I guess, lower or other GI disorders? Yeah. Uh, so I guess we'll move into inflammatory bowel disease. So um, IBD, <clears throat> which is kind of split into Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Uh, won't spend too much time on this. Uh, surprisingly, uh, you would think that being a digest, like inflammatory, you know, digestive diseases, that probiotics would be super <clears throat> helpful. But turns out that they aren't and I think that that poses you know that creates a lot of questions for us to answer that um uh kind of I was challenged to come up with mechanisms for but um a couple of the big meta-analyses for Crohn's were really inconclusive as far as um probiotics being helpful um uh, we we do know that uh dysbiosis so a poor uh, microbiome profile is associated with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, uh, but we do not know why the attempt to restore to a more favorable um, profile is not helpful. Uh, so probiotics have not been uh, unanimously effective in creating clinical remission for uh, people with Crohn's disease. Um, Saccharomyces boulardii uh, there was some research on that being a little bit promising, but that's, once again, that's that's a yeast, so we're not really going to get into that here. Um, <clears throat> so there were some 
insignificant results uh, in this particular meta-analysis, but VSL number three uh, experiments uh, are suggestive of helping post uh, surgery, like post colectomy, and I get into a study uh, later on that. But um, VSL three really is the most um, evidence-based um, or m- kind of most implicated probiotic in the case of inflammatory bowel disease um, in general. So, what about ulcerative colitis? So for ulcerative colitis, a uh, little more promising. Um, however, still really nothing um, to write home about. Um, VSL3 uh, shows improvement as well uh, for uh, improving symptomatic uh, expression of the disease. So uh, one uh, randomized control trial with about 150 adults showed that VSL number three improved bleeding and mucus production and kind of subjective, um, subjective pain in the context of a ulcerative colitis flare. Uh, and this was after, let's see, 12 weeks, I believe, of probiotic therapy with VSL number three. And then finally, for the digestive diseases, uh, I did want to point out that for colorectal cancer, there is a, a randomized control trial of 100 patients who were getting a colorectomy. So they were getting their colon and their rectum removed as a result of having colorectal cancer, uh, which is kind of the only treatment uh, for uh, colorectal cancer. And they were treated with, so the um, experimental group got a probiotic six days before the surgery and 10 days after the surgery. And they measured um, a number of things. They measured bacterial bacterial translocation, uh, the permeability of the intestinal lining, um, infectious disease-related outcomes, and they also measured the uh, microbiome in the feces that was created. And they found that the experimental group, so the group that got the VSL number three, had improvements in all of those. So they had less bacterial translocation, so they had less bacteria from their intestines getting into their bloodstream, which is obviously a good thing. Um, decreased gut permeability, which is uh, a huge issue in surgery. Um, and then they saw improved outcomes as far as getting infections, uh, which is super important because this, like giving people probiotics before and after this study suggests could decrease like hospital stay, which, I mean, that's, that's a lot of saved money. Um, because think about it, like if you're able to, I mean, <laughs> how many times uh, have, I guess you haven't done surgery yet, but there are so many times in which uh, you're waiting on someone to literally like poop. You're just like, <laughs> you're going in and it's you like, wait for it. Yeah. You're just like doing rounds and you go in there and you're like, Hey, like, are you walking? Are you farting? Are you pooping? Like literally, and you're just waiting on them to poop. And in this particular circumstance, it actually speeds up that like process. Um, so that can save a lot of money. What about any kind of conditions outside of the gut? Let's see. We got um, allergic rhinitis. So kind of these run-of-the-mill allergy symptoms with a runny nose. Uh, saw big meta-analyses that showed uh, improved symptoms. So less runny nose, less congestion, uh, decreased need for medication, 
with uh, probiotic use, and it didn't help with asthma though. Which I, I mean, I guess that's not super surprising because asthma is like quite a different mechanism as far as what's causing the symptoms. Did you see anything with atopic dermatitis? Because those are all pretty well correlated together. Right, like the what is it? The atopic triad. Yeah, um, I did. So atopic dermatitis. Uh, well, first of all, I, this was I this I thought this particular study was crazy. So there was about 400 pregnant women who had a history of atopic dermatitis, um, which does have kind of a hereditary component. <clears throat> and these pregnant women were given probiotics um, while pregnant. And they saw a substantial decrease in atopic dermatitis in their children versus the women who did not take the probiotic. Um, and this was all associated with the decrease in uh, T helper cell 22 uh, counts. And so that suggests that once again, there's something going on here with the microbiome and immunity, uh, which is one of the mechanisms by which this uh, it confers a lot of the benefits, um, which we'll get into in kind of the mechanisms section. So we hear a lot about the gut-brain connection mm-hmm. in functional medicine, and that gets touted a lot. Are there any, I guess, anything going on with the brain? Yeah, so uh, depression specifically in animal trials, uh, a fecal transplant from humans who have depression so you take humans that have depression you take their feces and you put them into mice that aren't colonized with bacteria and you they saw induced depression like symptoms so this was kind of suggesting that taking like there's a specific profile associated with depression and it is communicable, uh, which obviously there's some confounding factors there for sure, but I think that the, the implications are pretty substantial. Uh, as far as uh, humans go, uh, this particular randomized control trial, there are 40 patients with uh, major depressive disorder, and they got uh, 6 billion CFU of lactobacillus and uh, bifidobacterium for about eight weeks, and they saw um, improved uh, Beck depression inventory scores, uh, which is one of the subjective measures of uh, depression severity. They also saw improvements in insulin secretion, and they saw decreased insulin resistance. They saw decreased uh, CRP, IL-6, which are both markers of systemic inflammation, um, which we'll get into in just a minute. And... Also, they saw increased short-chain fatty acids, uh, glutathione, which are both uh, have significant anti-inflammatory properties. Um, and so and it, this, this study kind of drew that connection between depression and inflammation, which is kind of a, a theory that's coming up right now as the cytokine model of depression, suggesting that you can induce depression-like symptoms simply by creating a pro-inflammatory state. So that was uh, kind of that that def- that study in particular kind of made me start thinking. Okay, like is is that the way that the microbiome is exerting its effect on the brain and the rest of the body? Is it by decreasing um, inflammation? So there was a, a big trial with about fourteen hundred patients that looked at giving probiotics to both patients with 
major depressive disorder and healthy patients. And so we're going to take the healthy people and give them some better mood. <laughs> exactly. Is that what they were looking for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I suppose that was the goal. Um, but they saw that there was no effect on the mood for the healthy individuals, which I mean, I don't, that's kind of a hard thing to quantify people who are like quote unquote healthy by like the conventional medicine standards. You know, they don't have suicidality. They don't have like depressed affect. Like that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not like benefiting from a mood standpoint. Um, but for some reason in this particular trial of 1400 patients, they didn't separate out the conclusions about the MDD patients versus the healthy controls. And so it's worth pointing out that giving probiotics to the patients with depressive, uh, like major depressive disorder, um, there was, there was a substantial improvement in symptoms for mild to moderate depression. I mean, the P value was point, um, 0.029, which anything less than 0.05 is considered significant. So we've talked about these diseases where probiotics could potentially help. We talked about type two diabetes. We talked about, um, depression. We talked about IBS, um, colorectal cancer. And so now I wanted to break down a little bit of the mechanisms by which this works, because perhaps by understanding the general mechanisms, we can start to make a few educated guesses about how this might help healthy individuals. So even though, you know, you don't have IBS or you don't have depression, like we can, based on the mechanisms by which it does help these diseases, we can come to conclusions about how it might help on a subclinical level. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So do you want to get started and just let us know how these things work? Like we talked about earlier, bifidobacterium and lactobacillus are in a majority of these effective probiotics. And so it makes you wonder, you know, what is it about these particular strains that are benefiting uh, physiology? And the conclusion I came to was uh, a majority of the benefit that comes from taking probiotics comes from effects that are mediated by short-chain fatty acids. And so what are short-chain fatty acids? Uh, they are fatty acids that are either two carbons, three carbons, or four carbons in length. So the two-carbon um, short-chain fatty acid is acetate, and that is about 60% of the short-chain fatty acids that are produced. And then propionate, which is three, and that's about 25% of the uh, short-chain fatty acids that are produced. And then uh, butyrate, which is four short, uh, four carbons, and that's about 15%. And um, we find that there's a lack of these short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria in uh, a majority of the disease states that we talked about. And... Uh, two of, or bifidobacterium is one of the main bacteria that lead to short-chain fatty acid production, specifically acetate and uh, propionate. Interestingly, butyrate is one of the most, um, most kind of effective short-chain fatty acids in inducing these changes of like decreased inflammation, and it's produced in the highest amounts by clostridium, um, and, and I mean, that's obviously a broad um, genus of bacteria, but I thought that that was kind of surprising given that 
there are so many clostridium species that are deleterious, you know? Yeah. I mean, we hear about perfringes and yeah, all those that we worry about. And C. diff. I mean, you would think that you would think that a high proportion of clostridium species producing butyrate, um, would be good, but it, it clearly is more nuanced than this. And it's, it seems to be kind of a hormetic effect where you need a really good balance of both. But, um, so I kind of, in, in all the research I did on short chain fatty acids, uh, I kind of came up with a couple of mechanisms by which I think the average person is going to benefit from taking a probiotic. All right. So you've got these short chain fatty acids floating around that these bacteria are making. What, uh, what do you think they're doing? for us so yeah take we're gonna take one step back real quick uh so short chain fatty acids are created by these bacteria when they digest prebiotic fiber so our bodies struggle to digest prebiotic fiber and but that's really good fuel for these particular um probiotics and this, these particular commensal bacteria. And then from using the prebiotic fiber, they create either acetate, propionate, or butyrate. So I definitely heard about butyrate before. That one seems to be the most prevalent, or at least what I've read. What, uh, what, are they, what does it do particularly? Yeah, so uh, I would agree. I think that's the one that the most research has been done on and shows the, the kind of widest ranging um, benefits. And so once it's created by predominantly these Clostridia species, um, it activates a G-protein coupled receptor, causes T-regulatory cell differentiation. So uh, T-regulatory cells are kind of um, associated with decreasing inflammation as opposed to some of the other like T-cells that cause an inflammatory response. And so, right. I mean, you think about them going around and shutting down other T cells that are active. Exactly. Exactly. And so it increases T regulatory cell differentiation and directly inhibits, um, the inflammatory pathway. And this inflammatory pathway includes, um, NF kappa beta, uh, TNF alpha, IL six. And I know there's a lot of terms out there. So but this, this, this is a pathway that we're going to kind of refer to a lot. So if it's something you're interested in, I do recommend kind of just going out and exploring a little bit about um, kind of the inflammatory uh, pathway. Uh, and maybe we can kind of break it down once we get the um, website up and running. We can throw a few figures up there that will um, kind of help explain that. It's definitely easier to see in pictures. Yeah, yeah, because you can kind of see the pathway of how all of these affect each other. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, yeah, so uh, kind of to review so far, butyrate is produced by the clostridium. And I, I, I do want to say that the clostridium can take the acetate and the propionate that are produced by the bifidobacterium and lactobacillus and can create butyrate from it. And so there's this kind of communication between the bacteria. Um, and... So one of the other big mechanisms that we're going to keep coming back to for butyrate and the rest of the short-chain fatty acids is the inhibition of the um, <clears throat> of HDAC, so uh, histone um, deacetylase. 
and so it inhibits that. So histones are kind of these, uh, how do you characterize, like these almost like spoked uh, balls, I feel like is like the like how they appear in books. Yeah, I mean, I like to think about is like a uh, spool that you have yeah. thread on, and yeah. then the DNA is the thread that you're wrapping around them. Okay, yeah, that's. I think that's a great comparison. So, uh, and then when histones are acetylated, that means they're more likely to transcribe and um, express a particular gene. And So you're going to unwind them. Right, yep. right. And so if we're... And if you de-acetylate, then that means that you are blocking expression. Right. You're going to clump the DNA together, and it's, it's going to be tightly bound. And so these are inhibitors. So there's a lot of like... Uh, double negatives. Double negatives here. Uh, ultimately, it leads to like, in this particular context, it's gene expression. Um, however, it's, it's really nuanced, and it depends in what cells, um, like what cells are being... Um, inhibited, what cells are being activated. So, but all that aside, uh, butyrate is uh, a HDAC inhibitor. <clears throat> and through this mechanism, it induces apoptosis. So it induces cell death in CD4 and CD8 T cells. So that's one of the mechanisms by which it decreases um, inflammation in the gut. So we're killing some of our own, uh, I guess, immune system. Right. And and while that sounds bad, kind of superficially, uh, it's really, really important. And it kind of underlines this theme of like hormesis. Like we don't want too much of something, but we don't want too little of it either. We want like just the right amount. And um, butyrate produced by commensal um, bacteria in our guts like can help kind of maintain that homeostasis where we're not getting too much destruction of our immune system and our T cells, but we're like getting just enough so that it's not overactive. So just to clarify, hormesis, do you want to define that? Yeah, hormesis, imagine like a bell curve um, and where the middle of the bell curve is this kind of optimal response. And on either side of that, you have like tapering off of where you are getting a suboptimal result. So imagine a good example would be like exercise. like you don't want to exercise too little because then you become like overweight and like your mitochondria are inefficient, et cetera, et cetera. But if you exercise too much, um, that can cause problems too. You can get like, um, fatigue that accumulates over time, more susceptible to injury. I mean, there are a lot of other physiological issues with that. Um, but in the middle, like you are, you're getting a majority of the benefit. Yeah. Generally I hear about hormesis in the uh, context of stress. Yeah. Being applied to the system. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how like we adapt in an advantageous way is you, you're getting like just enough stress to adapt and like prime your system to, um, upregulate the enzymes involved and, and kind of like create a better, um, like environment for adaptation, um, without, uh, like burdening the system past the point which it can accommodate. Um, yeah. Anything else for anti-inflammatory? Yeah. So in addition to, um, kind of playing that role as an HDAC inhibitor and increasing Treg differentiation, it also increases, um, a few things called nod-like receptors. So we hear a lot about like toll-like receptors, TLRs and how they respond to viruses and how they respond to, 
um, uh, bacteria, especially like LPS, but nod-like receptors are also really important in uh, controlling the immune system around our gut. And so butyrate activates um, G protein coupled receptors that activate uh, specific nod-like receptors. And these nod-like receptors are shown to inhibit NF-kappa-beta and interestingly also increase expression of tight junctions, which tight junctions are super, super important to maintaining um, uh, intestinal epithelial cell integrity. And you hear a lot about leaky gut and kind of intestinal permeability and these kinds of things. This might be a mechanism by which um, short-chain fatty acids, especially butyrate, can help restore uh, the integrity of the epithelial lining. And it's super important to maintain the epithelial lining because if it is not, that's uh, creating uh, a way for bacteria to get into the bloodstream, um, even like undigested food to get into the bloodstream and allows uh, thing, toxins like LPS to get also into the bloodstream. And in fact, I mean, there are studies like that show that a uh, broken down epithelial lining allows for higher LPS levels in the bloodstream and the higher LPS levels are associated with things like depression and autoimmune disease. Yeah. Um, so a couple other ways that uh, short-chain fatty acids and butyrate are helpful in the context of the immune system and our gut are it stimulates production of mucin. Mucin is super important because as I mentioned, it's this uh, protective layer that's kind of between the bacteria and the epithelial cells of our gut. And there are many types of mucin, and it's just a um, glycoprotein and many different types. And it's really not fair to say that it's good or bad. It's kind of hormetic in nature as well. Like we, we want uh, a, like a solid amount of it, but we don't want too much because too much is associated with various um, pathologies as well. But this mucin layer contains IgA, which is one of our globulins that helps with uh, kind of uh, attacking, destroying, and identifying different pathogens in our uh, intestines. And it also contains antimicrobial peptides that are helpful for um, killing uh, disadvantageous bacteria. In the context of a low-fiber diet, microbes feed predominantly on mucin. And so that's kind of interesting because if you're not eating fiber, then the microbes in your gut are trying are eating the mucin and kind of like um uh taking away from your natural like protection if that makes sense yeah so you know a lot of the contents of the immune system are found within the gut actually mm. the galt yes the galt um what else is going on there yeah so also you have these macrophages uh that are also uh, kind of circulating around there, uh, which is another immune cell that we have that's involved in phagocytosis. So the kind of eating of uh, bacteria and other pathogens that aren't good for us. And unsurprisingly, butyrate also inhibits uh, HDAC as well in macrophages. And this uh, increases glycolysis, 
and inhibits mTOR in macrophages. Uh, and this whole process shunts uh, a lot of the energy towards the pentose phosphate pathway. I mean, this is like kind of step one review here, but as a result of shunting towards the pentose phosphate pathway, you get increased NADPH and that increases your ability to produce glutathione. And so glutathione is our body's most potent antioxidant. And so this is one of the mechanisms by which a robust microbiome creating a large amount of butyrate and short-chain fatty acids might increase our body's most potent antioxidant, which could lead to kind of suppression of inflammation in the body. So that's pretty substantial, I think. I mean, the way you're talking about butyrate, it sounds like it may be easier just to take that instead of actually taking a probiotic. Right. I, I was kind of thinking the same thing, and I kind of looked into it. Um, and indeed, like, you can take sodium butyrate, and you can take it uh, – I forget what the – form is but you can you can take it as a like a pre a pro drug and let your body convert it to butyrate um but you know i can't help but think that you know our bodies evolved in this very particular way where we're relying on bacteria to create butyrate because our our bodies cannot create it itself um and so i'm sure there are more nuanced mechanisms there that may not necessarily render butyrate as effective as a supplement. Um, but in this particular circumstance, you actually can prevent um, the, this metabolic change in macrophages with butyrate supplementation. So uh, that is a promising like intervention for butyrate supplementation. Also, um, I guess this is kind of a good transition to talking about the gut-brain axis, which is another com kind of the other um, big way that butyrate makes a difference on um, our bodies, where butyrate uh, receptors are found in the brain, and they also unsurprisingly inhibit these HDAC uh, histone deacetylases, and this causes um, microglial apoptosis in the context of LPS stimulation. So. What that all is saying is that there are these <clears throat> immune cells in our brain called microglia, which are kind of analogous to um, macrophages in the rest of the body. And uh, we don't always want microglia to be super stimulated. Once again, uh, kind of a hormetic effect where we want microglia to be efficient, but we don't want them to be overactive because then you get... Um, kind of chronic, long-standing um, inflammation and neurotoxicity in the brain. And so giving butyrate in the context of being stimulated by LPS actually um, kind of blocks the proliferation, overstimulation of microglia. So, yeah. All right. So onto the gut-brain axis. Yeah. I know there's a little bit about the blood-brain barrier there. How does something from the gut get to the brain and how does that work? Yeah. So blood brain barrier is like a super, super important, um, physiological mechanism. So it keeps, um, a lot of things in our blood from getting to our brain just cause it's, our brains are so a important and, um, kind of susceptible to, um, the things that are circulating in our blood. Uh, so we developed this really 
impressive mechanism to keep things out that shouldn't be in there. And so the blood-brain barrier uh, is composed primarily of these tight junctions. Interestingly, the same, you know, same tight junctions that are in the intestines. And in addition, there are um, cells that kind of create these like barriers around the tight junctions, the astrocytes and the parasites. And interestingly, uh, the, the blood-brain barrier really only allows um, small lipophilic molecules to pass through. So that would lipophilic meaning kind of fatty. Um, and so these short chain fatty acids, they kind of fit the profile for these substances that pass easily through the blood brain barrier, which almost, you know, from an evolutionary perspective makes you think that like it's advantageous. Like if the, if the, if the only, if some of the only substances that are easily passing through the blood brain barrier are short chain fatty acids, then maybe there's like a reason for that. Right. I don't know. Perhaps. Perhaps. Um. <laughs> so we know that the short-chain fatty acids are getting through the blood-brain barrier, which is interesting. I guess, how does it act there? Like, is there, are there receptors? What's going on? Yeah, so there are receptors there that are actually really similar to the ones <clears throat> in the gut. And, I mean, they're kind of all over the body, but it's particularly interesting in the brain because of the um, kind of inflammation inflammatory modulation properties of the short chain fatty acids. So through the H, uh, inhibition of HDAC, um, like we discussed earlier, inhibition of HDAC suppresses uh, NF kappa beta expression, TNF alpha, IL-6, all those inflammatory markers. So this is a mechanism by which a favorable microbiome could affect, so kind of taking a step back and walking through the pathway, you, know, you have a microbiome that's producing an abundance of short-chain fatty acids, especially butyrate. And that butyrate is entering the bloodstream in a relatively small amount through the portal vein, and it's circulating through the body, and it gets to the brain, it gets to the blood-brain barrier and passes through relatively easily, and then it gets to um, the neurons in our brain it gets transported in fairly easily and exerts its effect primarily through the inhibition of histone deacetylase, and that decreases inflammation in the neuron. Uh, and inflammation in our brains associated with, I mean, gosh darn near everything, depression, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, MS. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. So that's pretty promising. Yeah, it seems like anytime the system gets out of whack, there's some kind of inflammation. Right. It seems like, I mean, it, it's really simplistic to blame inflammation for everything, but it also seems pretty accurate. <laughs> um, so uh, specifically in the gut, uh, there's these cells called enterochromuffin cells, chromaffin, I remember enterochromaffin cells, and they contain about 90 to 95% of the body's uh, serotonin. Serotonin is made from tryptophan, which is an amino acid, and it's essential. Uh, our bodies can't make it, so we rely on our diet to get the tryptophan. And then the short-chain fatty acids that we've been talking about, they induce uh, the expression of a particular enzyme, the TPH1 enzyme, in uh, the um, enterochromaffin cells, and 
this enzyme allows tryptophan to be converted to serotonin. So short-chain fatty acids allow tryptophan to be converted to serotonin. So if we don't have short-chain fatty acids, it stands to reason that we're going to get tryptophan from our diet, but we're not going to get it converted to serotonin. And we actually find that that is what happens indeed in these dysbiotic states. You see higher levels of tryptophan indicating that this tryptophan isn't being converted to serotonin. And obviously serotonin implicated in um, a lack of serotonin implicated in uh, depression. Um, Serotonin plays a huge role in gut motility. So um, having an ample amount of serotonin in your digestive system is important for um, kind of colonic movement and like passing um, passing stool. So it seems like these two systems are pretty well linked. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right. So what about insulin, obesity, and cancer? <laughs> There's some big topics to take on. Yeah, and, and some of you might feel like those are like insulin, obesity, and cancer, like somewhat unrelated, but um, I would argue they are quite intimately related. Um, so this whole, as we were kind of discussing earlier, uh, the whole like obesity um, and cancer thing end up being a lot about just inflammation. And so uh, kind of drawing a couple of links here, inflammation, uh, chronic inflammation kind of causes the body to be in this like pro-insulinemic state. And your body being in a hyperinsulinemic state is associated with increased risk for cancer. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, obesity uh, and uh, the buildup of adipose tissue increases the body's like systemic inflammation through production of adipokines. So you can see how this is all linked. Like you gain weight, you have this fat, it produces inflammation. The inflammation makes you pro-insulinemic. That makes you more susceptible to cancer. Insulinemic, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of this like cyclic, um, this cyclic issue. And so it's particularly interesting here that short chain fatty acids have this um, anti-inflammatory effect in all uh, somatic cells via um, getting taken up into either beta cells in the pancreas or hepatocytes in the liver, decreasing inflammatory markers like TNF-alpha, IL-6, IL-1-beta. And then specifically related to insulin, um, short-chain fatty acids, uh, particularly butyrate, uh, increase the amount of GLP-1, uh, which is the glucagon-like peptide 1. And that, so GLP-1 binds to beta cells in the, um, in the pancreas and stimulate production of insulin, which is important because... Um, we have a drug that does that. <laughs> we do, we do. Um, Exactly. And so that's one of the drugs that we use for diabetes. So it's like, huh, like you could get off that drug perhaps if you are managing your microbiome. Um, so GLP-1 binds to beta cells and stimulates insulin secretion, which is good uh, in the context of diabetes, actually, because it's going to decrease um the kind of hyperglycemic state that you're in in a very kind of organic way um, without side effects because it's a homeostatic kind of mechanism. And in addition to that, short-chain fatty acids stimulate L-cells 
in the distal ilium to secrete peptide YY, which is a marker or a uh, inducer of satiety in the brain. Uh, we see that <clears throat> uh, uh, when short-chain fatty acids cause GLP-1 secretion, it also decreases postprandial glucose, which makes sense because it's stimulating insulin, which causes postprandial glucose um, not to spike so much. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like a plausible mechanism for how it's, um, like helping regulate blood sugar and insulin secretion. Yeah. I mean, everything seems to be kind of regulated through some sort, like some sort of inflammation and, and kind of lastly, uh, we're not going to dive into cancer a lot just cause there's so much of that, uh, that we could get into, but, uh, these short-chain fatty acids also have a kind of beneficial effect on mTOR. And most, it's not unanimously a inhibitor or a stimulator for mTOR, but um, in most cells, it seems like it is an mTOR inhibitor, which is beneficial for the sake of kind of blocking like neoplastic processes. So that's kind of interesting. All right, so how do we make sense of all this? How can we put it all together? So yeah, we, we see that probiotics can help modulate inflammation and, and blood sugar, which are two things that um, it seems like we can't like get enough of as far as, you know, like the stresses of daily life, the stresses of eating a um, standard American diet. Um, I think that we could use some, like we could use some insurance against those things. Yeah, tipping, um, the, tipping the scales back in the favor of not being so inflamed and right. And, and if, I mean, we know that drinking alcohol causes, um, breakdown of the integrity of the epithelial lining of our gut. And so, you know, if, if, I mean, if you're drinking alcohol, it's probably good to also be taking a probiotic, you know, um, if you're eating a standard American diet that does, that has, um, a lot of processed meat or refined grains, low, exactly low fiber, then, you're probably not producing an optimal amount of short chain fatty acids. And so you're really not optimizing, um, your body for, uh, inflammation and glucose management and these kinds of things. And so, yes, you may, you know, you may not have diabetes right now. You may not have depression right now. You may not have an autoimmune disease right now, but by optimizing your microbiome and, um, and getting some of these short chain fatty acids into your blood, you are kind of creating a, um, uh, you're kind of protecting yourself against some of these things. Okay. So people may not have some of these conditions, but a lot of people have been exposed to antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And I know that's kind of a big concern and hot topic yeah. when it comes to probiotics. Yeah. So I looked into this cause, um, it's something I was interested in as well. And, um, we found that, in animal models, uh, giving broad spectrum antibiotics actually stunted um, hippocampal neurogenesis. So um, the primary uh, brain structure that's involved in memory, uh, the its its growth and like kind of connections were stunted by seven weeks of broad spectrum antibiotic exposure. Uh, but this was reversed by the administration of probiotics 
And interestingly, it was also reversed um, in a different trial by um, exercise, which makes sense because exercise is known to increase um, BDNF, brain ner- brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Um, and we also know that early antibiotic exposure is associated with childhood obesity. Um, and mothers given antibiotics during pregnancy increases the prevalence of childhood obesity as well. And so we, it, th- this is kind of suggestive that antibiotics deleteriously affect our microbiome. And as a result, we um, are more susceptible to um, adiposity and inflammation. Briefly, I kind of wanted to go through the, uh, like, if you're a listener and you're interested in potentially getting some of the health benefits from taking a probiotic supplement or probiotic food or whatever, um, just some of the considerations. Uh, So a majority of the research is done on VSL number three. Um, it contains lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, and streptococcus, streptococcus salivarius. And strep? Stre- stre- yeah. <laughs> um, and it has a $112.5 billion. And so, like, and I guess it's a little more on the expensive side. Um, it's about $60 for about 60 capsules. Right. So it comes about to a dollar per serving. Yeah. Um, which if you're taking one a day, like I am, I mean, that's less than a cup of coffee. Um, I'm taking one per week. (laughs) So definitely a little bit lower dose and a little bit more accessible. I remember looking at some of the directions that they provide and they have directions specifically for conditions. Um, which is kind of interesting given that it's an over the counter supplement and, um, take that as you will but I think the doses that they recommend are a little bit higher. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about also like viability of the bacteria that's in the capsule because when you, when you think about it, I mean, our stomach acid is super strong. And so if, if you're taking a probiotic and it's not in an enterically coated capsule that's designed to... Um, that's designed to make it through the stomach acid and release the, the bacteria, the live bacteria into the colon, um, then you're probably not going to get the best result. And there's a, there's a, like a paucity of research on this. Like there's not a ton, unfortunately, nor do I think it's like terribly important because the reality is, is we can come up with all the mechanisms we want. We can, you know, uh, poke holes in the bacteria's ability to like, set up set up shop in the colon but the reality is is there are results from taking these supplements i mean they're like there are health like people's glucose is decreasing their insulin resistance is decreasing right i mean i think you're referencing there some of the studies that came out that were showing that taking an oral probiotic didn't necessarily change the um i guess residual bacteria in the gut it was just more of a transient result is that right right so a lot of these effects may be just exerted through like the temporary kind of transient um exposure to uh bifidobacteria lactobacillus and um streptococcus but 
you know, I don't know. If, I did not find any long-term studies that show like, oh, if you take a probio- if you take this probiotic every day, that over the course of three months, you actually have long-term lasting effects on your profile. I don't, I don't know if any studies doing that, but maybe I just overlooked them. Right. I mean, a lot of the studies that you cited were maybe 12 weeks, so four months. Right. And who knows how long it takes to, for some of these, uh, for some of these guys to like take hold and like really. Right. I mean, you hear about like colonization of the gut and these bacteria have kind of spread. And once they cover the surface, it can be hard to either like get them off or. Right. Um, and so as far as like when to take these probiotics, that that's kind of a sticky issue too, that I'm surprised there's really not that much research on. Um, so you want, you want to keep in mind the acidity of the stomach. And so if you take probiotic powder, like in which you can mix in water, or if you are eating a probiotic substance or consuming it like in as a kombucha or something like that, um, the if you take it without food there's a there's a lower uh, stomach acidity because you're not consuming a bunch of food with it and so it's more likely to pass on live culture to um, the colon and that's actually that is actually supported by research that um, consuming um, a probiotic food not in an enteric capsule uh not while eating other food, it gets into the colon. Right. And I mean, we're talking about uh, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of these things. And the reality is we're not looking at bioavailabilities or anything like that. We're not looking at levels in our blood. Yeah. It's trying to get it to our gut, which is a funny way of delivery. Yeah. And I mean, we could probably spend a whole episode talking about um, how these things are measured because uh, I looked, I looked a little bit into it and I was like, oh, this is the weeds for sure. But like, it's important. Uh, how are we, how are we measuring the viability? Are we doing it through fecal matter? Cause that's actually not the most accurate way to do it. But, um, it's also not a super reliable way to do a colonoscopy and do like, um, samplings of the actual microbiome, uh, because it's, it's different in different parts of the colon. It's different in different parts of the ileum. And so, um, I mean, it's, it's, it would be very easy to spend lots of time and money doing testing and trying to figure out, um, you know, what do you need? Where, um, where is this like uh, probiotic, um, really functioning? But once again, I think we just come back to this like principle of, okay, is it working? Do we, do we really need to like flesh out the exact mechanism if it's working, the side effects, are not terribly significant. In fact, I guess that's a good time to bring up the side effects. It is not. Okay. It is not a good time to bring up the side effects. <laughs> okay. I'm going to throw another variable at okay. you. And it's definitely something that's pertinent when you're navigating the market uh-huh. for um, looking at these products. And that was definitely complicated, even coming from a medical background, trying to figure out the strains, the doses. And then a question comes up, do these bacteria even have to be alive? Um, I mean, a lot of these products are sitting on shelves and had been manufactured. Do we think these bacteria are alive? How do we even get into that? That's a whole different ball game. Yeah, and I mean they're technically not probiotics if they're if they're dead, right? But there is research suggesting that even dead bacteria have 
some effect on our microbiome. I don't, that mechanism is not fleshed out at all, but there was a couple studies I found, uh, doing that. Right. So, I mean, if you're considering, how do I know if these bacteria are alive or dead? Yeah, no way to know. Right. I know a lot of probiotics do require refrigeration, um, but not all, which is kind of bizarre. Right. That's definitely concerning. Right. I mean, I, I think that it's a safe bet to just keep your probiotics in the fridge. Right. And I know like back to VSL number three, it's nice. Um, it's accessible through Amazon and it comes packaged with an ice pack. It does. You know that they manufacture it and keep it cold. Yeah, exactly. All right. Now we can get to your safety concerns. (laughs) Uh, so it would be remiss to just like come on here and say that this is like a, a completely flawless um, intervention that doesn't come with any consequences. Because there have, I mean, there have been some relatively significant consequences, albeit few and far between, and typically incredibly benign. Um, the most common side effects that people complain about are bloating, diarrhea, headaches, um, some histamine-related side effects, um, just because of how um, gut bacteria can um, expedite the conversion of histamine. Um, some of these probiotics do contain contaminants, uh, which is an important thing to point out because since probiotics are considered supplements, they're not regulated, uh, like normal pharmaceuticals are, which is, uh, kind of a separate conversation on, um, FDA and regulation and stuff. But it is, it is pertinent to this conversation because, I think that it would be hard for probiotics to become standard of care for anything until it is um, kind of systematically vetted and, um, you know, a company is uh, validated like that. I know VSL3 is, I think, one of the only pharmaceutical probiotics. Is that right? Um, I mean, I guess that's what I was going to ask you was, uh, I know that, I guess you could probably write a prescription for a probiotic and, I mean, that's what happens in the hospital. Yeah. Um, do you know of any that are FDA approved or? So I think, I mean, I, I amount it to something like melatonin where you can prescribe melatonin. Even um, though it's an over the counter. Even though it's an over the counter. Same thing yeah. with like aspirin or whatever. So I think VSL number three is like that. It's considered pharmaceutical grade. Uh, it's not vetted by FDA, but it is considered high label. quality. Yeah. Um, kind of like walks that line. Right. And so I think for in order for probiotics to be considered as a standard of care for anything, it's going to have to, um, be standardized more. And, and, you know, that's going to allow us to stop, to not have to worry about contaminants causing allergic reactions. Um, and the contaminants also, uh, could include other, um, bacteria that aren't on the label, um, also include fungus. In fact, one of the most serious potential side effects, and this is really something, only to be worried about in immunocompromised individuals um, or people who have like HIV are um, fungemia, so translocation of fungus into the bloodstream causing um, sepsis and death. Um, There's also been like rare cases of infective endocarditis, liver abscesses, pneumonia, but once again, these are really only in critically ill patients or um, neonates who have really, really poor, um, gut function. So, uh, and then one last thing is just like with any bacteria, um, you run into the issue of antibiotic resistance. And so if 
if, for example, um, a company uh, capsulated a bacteria that had an antibiotic resistance to something and then your gut was colonized with it, that could definitely create some um, undesirable kind of side effects. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could definitely, I could see where that could throw off the balance if you took an antibiotic and it selected against all other strains except for that one or something like that. Yeah. Um, Assessment and plan? Yeah, so I think that the kind of conclusion is that for the diseases of IBS, atopic dermatitis, depression, type 2 diabetes, um, potentially uh, some variations of inflammatory bowel disease, I think that uh, the most recent evidence really suggests that this could be beneficial with almost um, no risk of side effect. Uh, I think if people are interested in uh, managing their disease uh, using probiotics, they still should bring it up to their um, their you know healthcare provider. And I think uh, definitely would be happy to equip them with. Uh, the research that supports that decision. So if anyone listening is interested in that, uh, please do reach out um, to man's search for medicine at, at gmail.com. Yeah, so, yeah, man's search for medicine at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to um, uh, give you some of the research to take to your uh, physician. Um, speaking of, I think, Hopefully in the near future, we are able to get our website running, which will have uh, all of the resources that I used for this podcast. Uh, I think probably used about 100 citations or so. So there's there's a lot of evidence to go through if you're interested in that. Um, so yeah, uh, as far as healthy individuals go, we found that probiotics do have uh, positive effects on uh, inflammation and uh, immune function, as well as uh, glucose handling. And I think these are all things that even healthy individuals could benefit from because of the susceptibilities that we face in day-to-day life, just being surrounded by um, the environments that we're in, the food that we consume, this uh, the stress that we endure. I think that we could definitely benefit from the um, effects of an improved uh, microbiome. What do you think? I agree. I mean, I think when it comes down to it, the goal is going to be to end up eating real food. Yes. And sure. maybe this lends some evidence to if it fits your macros, not necessarily <laughs> being the case. Yeah, like <clears throat> if you are consuming carbohydrates that are exclusively not fiber versus carbohydrates that are, you know, half fiber. I mean, that makes a huge difference. I don't know how someone could argue that it does not, you know? Right. I mean, given this kind of interaction. Yeah, for sure. So some stuff that we didn't get into necessarily was testing method, like testing methods. I know. Yeah. I mean, actually we kind of like, we talked about the colonoscopy tests and we kind of got into all the stuff that we said that we weren't going to get into. So, <laughs> we did, didn't we? Do you feel like an expert? 
I feel like after that, all that research, I mean, it sounds kind of trite, but I feel like I'm like... This podcast is for general informational purposes only and doesn't constitute medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the material of this podcast is at the user's own risk. Guests who speak on the podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The content of this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any treatment of conditions.